The word dramaturgy is unusual enough that my phone's autocorrect function changes it to dramaturgy. Even for theater makers, the concept is nebulous enough to prompt articles about it in major newspapers with headlines like, What the Bleep is a Dramaturg? In my dramaturgy classroom, I aim to demystify dramaturgy as an art form by recognizing that, as scholars and theater makers, we all already commit acts of dramaturgy regularly and enthusiastically. In my books, dramaturgy is an act of creation and more of a mindset than a set of rules, regulations, and duties. I'm Professor Molly Seremet, and it's such a thrill to welcome you back for season two of Writ in the Margins, a podcast that harnesses dramaturgical thinking as a performative act of creation. This podcast was conceptualized, researched, written, produced, and realized by the graduate students in the Shakespeare and Performance Program at Mary Baldwin University. For season two, we are bringing you 13 episodes that unpack, investigate, reimagine, and sometimes even push against five wildly different plays. El Muerto Dissimulado, or Presumed Dead, by Angela de Azevedo. The Antipodes, by Richard Broom. The Island Princess, by John Fletcher. Loa to the Divine Narcissus, by Sor Juana Inez de la Cruz. And Life is a Dream, by Pedro Calderón de la Barca. These plays sit alongside Shakespeare in the universe of early modern drama, but each has its own unique terrain and orbit. And each episode offers a close look at key features of the landscape from a dramaturgical perspective. In their research, students have deployed tools of structural analysis, contextual synthesis, and creative intervention, and have intermingled their research with performed scenes, original music, and special features galore. Feel free to listen to the episodes in this season in any order. I hope you'll also go back and revisit season one as well. Do visit our website for show notes, transcripts, and bibliographic materials. We appreciate the support of Mary Baldwin University's Shakespeare and Performance Program in this endeavor. Now that's enough for me. On to your episode of Writ in the Margins. episode of Writ in the Margins, where we'll be covering Lopa de Vega's Fuente Ovejuna. I'm Kaylee. And I'm Kelsey. And we're graduate students in the Mary Baldwin University Shakespeare and Performance Program, here to chat about some of the dramaturgical aspects of this Spanish Golden Age play. For anyone who hasn't yet read Fuente Ovejuna, and you should, it's really good, here's a bit of a plot summary. We're first introduced to Commander Guzman, who persuades the master of the Order of Calatrava to attack Ciudad Real, a city held by Castile in the name of the Portuguese monarchy. While that attack occurs, the commander assumes control of Fuente Ovejuna, a local pastoral village. After becoming more and more of a threat to the women of the town, the commander attacks Lorencia after she refuses his affections. She's rescued by her love, Frondozo, but the commander vows revenge on them both. At Lorencia and Frondozo's wedding, the commander interrupts the ceremony, imprisons Frondozo, and drags Lorencia away to his fortress. The men of the town gather that evening, debating what they should do about the commander. Lorencia, having escaped the commander, confronts them along with the other women of the town, demanding that they take revenge on the commander. The entire town of Fuente Ovejuna rises up and together they storm the fortress and kill Commander Guzman. 
The death of the commander draws the attention of King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, who send a magistrate to the village with orders to find out who killed the commander by any means necessary. The villagers, knowing that they'll be tortured to see if they'll reveal what happened, all take a vow to only say that Fuente Ovahuna did it. Even during torture, they all keep their vow, and Ferdinand and Isabella pardon the town for the crime and retake Ciudad Real from the master, who apologizes for allowing himself to be manipulated by Commander Guzman. Ah, a mob scene, a wedding, torture. All the ingredients you need to make a great early modern play. And also why De Vega was such a popular playwright in his own time. One of the most compelling facts about De Vega's play is that it's based on true events. In 1476, the historical Aldusian village of Fuente Ovahuna, located in the Kingdom of Castile, rose up and murdered Fernán Gómez de Guzmán, a commander of the Order of Calatrava, after he took over the town and mistreated them. De Vega tells us that this is because of his threatening behavior towards the women of the village, but history doesn't tell us specifically just what Guzmán did to incur the wrath of the entire town. In response to his death, King Ferdinand II of Aragon sent a royal magistrate to investigate the killing. And even in the face of torture, the citizens of the village refused to confess who was responsible for the attack, only responding that Fuente Ovahuna did it. Which is really what theatrical dreams are made of, right Kelsey? Eat your heart out, Shakespeare. So, to really understand just how serious the death of the commander was, we'll need to go into a bit of detail about the relationship between the military and the church in 1400s Spain. First, let's talk about the different Spanish kingdoms that existed at the time. We have the Kingdom of Aragon to the east and Navarre to the north, which both share a border with France. Then Castile, the largest of all the kingdoms in the middle of what is now modern-day Spain. Granada exists on the southern border of Castile. And finally, we have Portugal to the west, touching the Atlantic Ocean. Five kingdoms, all ruled by separate monarchs, and all fighting for territory. That power dynamic will change in 1469, when King Ferdinand of Aragon marries Queen Isabella of Castile, his half-cousin. Wait, his half-cousin? Don't think too much about it. This was medieval Europe, Kelsey. Their marriage will unite the two territories and create the first Spanish kingdom, which they will rule jointly. Wow! Good for them. Equal authority. Now, all of these kingdoms and Castile face an external threat from Moorish armies located in northern Africa, which is very close to the border to Granada. Those Islamic forces posed an especially dangerous threat to Castile due to how close the territories were. To address this threat, Castilian monasteries converted themselves into military orders meant to defend pilgrims and church property from Islamic invaders. One of these orders was the Order of Calatrava, formed out of a Cistercian monastery, which became the Kingdom of Castile's first military order when it was formed in 1164. Admittedly, Kaylee, I know very little about military orders. The Knights Templar was one, right? Can you go into this a little bit more? Yeah. Uh, life in any military order at this time would have been heavily structured, focused on the honing of military skills and the purification of the soul. Taking up arms to defend the church was a chicken soup for the Spanish knight's soul. Interesting combination, violence and piety. 
All knights in a religious order would have obeyed the same vows as the monks that they worked and lived alongside. Oaths of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Calatrava had some additional requirements for its members, mainly the rule that they must always wear the white and red Cistercian robes while in public. Life was strict in these orders, but it also created a cultural system where wealthy men could advance socially. The order, having existed for over 300 years by the time the events of Fuente Ovahuna begins, had grown to be an incredibly powerful organization, powerful enough to challenge the authority of the king and queen. In the play, the commander has convinced the master of the order to evade Ciudad Real in the name of Portugal, and since Fuente Ovahuna is nearby, the commander occupies the city under the pretense of protecting them from the soldiers. And that's when things start to go wrong. Dun, dun, dun! While the commander has taken and promised to keep his vows of poverty, obedience, and chastity, he will quickly abandon those ideals once he is in control of Fuente Ovahuna. His powerful position allows him to confiscate food and goods from the villagers, which they first give as gifts, but are later taken by force. His attack against the sovereignty of the Kingdom of Castile has shattered his promise of loyalty, and the numerous attempts he and his soldiers make to assault the women of Fuente Ovahuna show how little he cares about chastity. In fact, the commander gives an entire speech about how much he enjoys the women of the town. Loose women I've a soft spot for, but less so once I'm satisfied. Ah, Flores, if they only were aware of what their charms are worth. A man whom ardor's heat lays waste is glad to have his pleasures sealed by lady friends who readily yield, though he disdain them for this haste. All this bad behavior has set him against the Catholic Church and the authority of Ferdinand and Isabella, which means that while he may wear the robes of a holy order, the commander no longer represents them. This corrupted manifestation of Christianity is what motivates the villagers of Fuente of Ahuna to muster the courage and justification to take action against the commander. We mentioned earlier that Lope de Vega was hugely popular in his own time. Cervantes called him one of nature's marvels and the reigning monarch of the stage. He was an incredibly prolific playwright, producing more than 1,500 plays in his time. However, he was lesser known outside of Spain. It wasn't until the 20th century that we would begin to see Fuente of Huna rise in popularity in the English-speaking world. When the play was first published and performed in the late 16th century, de Vega's audience would have immediately viewed the play as political, comparing it to the current political situation and the disappointing leadership of Philip III. However, de Vega upholds the place of the monarchy, highlighting what happens to those who act against it and its laws in the torture of the citizens of Fuente Ovahuna. Productions from the past century have focused on the ideals of democracy, socialism, and sometimes communism, like the notable Russian ballet adaptation. Peasants rising up against unjust powers rang true amongst the rebellions and political upheavals that plagued the 20th century. Fuente Ovahuna was first published in French in 1829 in the aftermath of the French Revolution, causing other translations to quickly spread throughout Europe. We've singled out three productions, not necessarily adaptations, from the last 50 years that demonstrate Fuente Ovahuna's place in the modern world. The first being the 1972 La Mama production. The La Mama Experimental Theater Club of New York City produced a three-act version of the play in 1972. The English translation was done by Professor William Colford. This production, apart from changing the traditional five-act structure, appears to have been a pretty straightforward production set in an early modern Fuente Ovahuna. 
And then there's the 1989 production done by the Royal National Theatre in London. This production was directed by Declan Donnellan. That name sounds familiar. He was one of the co-founders of the theater company Cheek by Jowl. Oh, that's the one that did that crazy Russian production of Measure for Measure that we watched. Exactly. This production was also his directorial debut at the Royal National Theater when he was made associate director. Oh, wow. Good for him. Yeah, the translation was done by Adrian Mitchell, and tickets only cost between £5 and £15. We should keep inflation in mind for that. <laughs> Still cheaper than when I was seeing shows there, and that was with a student discount. Anyway, the play had a bit of a lengthier run. In addition to its mounting at the National Theatre, this production represented Britain at Expo 92 in Seville and went to the Edinburgh International Festival. In Seville, the play was presented in front of the Spanish delegation in English. Donnellan was rightfully fearful since the play is a darling of the Spanish Golden Age. However, the audience and delegation from Fuente Ovahuna loved it and gave flamenco handclaps at the curtain call. I love that! Isn't that sweet? <laughs> One critic described it as being a succession of set pieces before the community of the village sweeps the audience away into the narrative. Rachel Joyce's performance of Lorencia was described as free, assured, and lively. Her grief and rage, when they inevitably come, are the more overpowering for the contrast with her former character. The same critic also noted that the entire company, though, are uniformly excellent both as individuals and in inspired ensemble sequences. The aesthetic of the play was similar to that of La Mama's in that it was set in the original time period. A program for the production showcases little to no conceptual notes, but paragraphs of historical context regarding Lope de Vega's career and the geography and political issues surrounding the play to help center an audience unlikely to be familiar with the text. Critics and audiences loved it, being performed to unanimous approbation. Now, the 2008 Stratford Shakespeare Festival production was the debut of Lope de Vega on their stage. Oh, they'd never done a De Vega play before 2008? Nope. Oh, crazy, considering how much Shakespeare they do. You'd think they'd also be doing other early modern playwrights, including those from the Spanish Golden Age. You would think. It was performed in the Tom Patterson Theater and directed by British director Lawrence Boswell. He also translated this particular production. Something else interesting to note is that the Tom Patterson Theater is a thrust stage. Hmm, that must have been a fun challenge with all those mob scenes. Indeed. <laughs> now, the word to describe this production was melodramatic. Another critic describes the production as awkward but inadvertently comic. Hmm. He re really didn't like Boswell's direction. He also describes a fight in slow motion ends up looking silly, while the decision to have crucial offstage dialogue boom like the voice of God through the sound system turns the offstage torture of a 10-year-old into a giggle-inducing moment. However, audiences received the performance positively, and Sarah Topham, our own acting instructor here at Mary Baldwin, was singled out for her spirited performance. And speaking of Sarah Topham, we are ecstatic to announce that a very special guest will be joining us for this episode. Yes, Sarah Topham played Laurencia in the Stratford production, and she has graciously agreed to speak with us today about her experience. So, Sarah, uh, you played Laurencia in the 2008 Stratford Shakespeare Festival production of Fuente of Ahuna. Uh, did you have any familiarity with the play before you were cast? I had absolutely none, and uh, I sort of first heard of the play. The season hadn't been announced, 
And on my dressing room table, I was doing uh, An Ideal Husband, The Merchant of Venice and King Lear that year, like the 2007 year. And on my dressing room table, I came in for a performance of Merchant, I think. And on my dressing room table was uh, an envelope. And you always know at that time of year, it's from the director's office and it's probably an audition. And so um, inside it was the big speech when she comes back to rouse the town people and uh and a copy of the play in a different translation because the translation we were using in the production was done by the director who had a has a big expertise in those plays um and so I read another translation which was not nearly as good to give me a sense of the play and then I went in and actually did his translation of the speech and I think it was literally like the next afternoon and I had a two-show day the next day so it was, you know, almost a cold read. Um, and I, rem- I remember what I was wearing in the audition. I remember the, the room it was in at Stratford. And I remember kind of connecting with Lawrence and knowing that he was sort of nodding his head and thinking like, oh, I think I'm going to end up playing this part. Quite the speech to jump into, like off the jump for sure. Yep. You mentioned that your director translated the play. What was, what was that kind of experience like? Oh, that was amazing because he knew the play. I always think the ideal is that on the first day of rehearsal, the director knows the play better than anyone. And by the end of rehearsal, you should certainly know your journey through the play better than the director. And the company as a collective should know the play better than the director. It's part of how you take the play away from the director, which you have to do to run a play successfully. But he was really wonderful. And we had a couple of things like, so he's British. In one speech, I had to talk about what we would call an eggplant. And being British, he had used the word aubergine. I remember the Pasquala and I spent quite a long time trying to explain to him that it's not that Canadians don't know aubergine, but for a lot of people, that will be a kind of like a, a clang in their ear and maybe take them out of play. I know we changed the line, but he hated the word eggplant. He just hated it. But it was great also because you could talk about what the word tastes like when you say it. Um, Because the physical experience of speaking a word or a phrase is such an important part of acting, of bringing the words to life. Because we choose words in heightened situations because of how they feel to say. Yeah, it sounds like a very collaborative process, which seems cool, especially with the sort of translation aspect of the play yeah absolutely and not collaborative in the sense that we got to say I don't like that word can we change the word but we were able to get a lot of support in I think that's always a thing with translation sometimes having someone talk through it with you in the original language gives you a window into the translation and you know it was a large company there were almost 40 of us in the production so I think he really enjoyed that piece of it being able to be more physically creative because he had more bodies so looking at your past theater credits um is this the only Spanish golden age play that you've done it is sadly I loved doing this play for those of you listening who might have seen Slings and Arrows, Paul Gross plays um, the director, Jeffrey. Um, he came to see our six or seven preview and he came to the stage door afterwards to chat and talk to friends. And I remember him grabbing my arms and just starting to weep and saying, I was so sure they were going to kill you. I was so sure they were going to kill you. And then he said, it's an extraordinary feeling to go and see a classical play that I don't know the ending of. And he said, it must have been, it's what it must have been like for the first group of people who saw Romeo and Juliet or 
Mackers or Hamlet or so yeah I'll always remember that he was so moved by Isabella and Ferdinand pardoning us. Wow that's really beautiful. (laughs) So we know that you've done a lot of Shakespeare in the past. How was this experience different um, doing a Spanish play and then obviously a translation um, but the play itself how is that different from English drama? I think having to relax into the, the the weave is different right like if Shakespeare is a particular kind of fabric weave it was different on the Spanish Golden Age play and I don't quite know how to articulate it it's less it's it's a bit rumblier somehow and you had to trust that the rumble of the play would carry you that is of course also partly hooked to the translating piece because in Shakespeare the play is not the meaning of the words. It's literally the words, the meaning, the texture, the sound. And of course, the same is true in a Spanish Golden Age play. It's just that we only do them in translation. So we are losing a little piece of that combination. And maybe that's why the, the weave feels looser. But also, you know, my friend Severn and I, who were playing Lorenza and Pasquale, talked all the time about how these women are different. These women know that there are real things in the world in a way of a lot of Shakespeare's women only discover over the course of the play. Like if you think about Imogen, she begins as a princess and then, and then she makes all these discoveries through the woods. Lorencia and Pasquala begin the play knowing the truth about men, you know, a particular kind of man, knowing the truth about the commander, knowing the truth about how life is dangerous. They already know those things. Um, so most of the previous productions of Fuente Obuhuna that we've researched appear to have tried to remain historically accurate. Um, we haven't really found any modernizations. Was there a particular concept for the production? Yeah, we were incredibly lucky. We had live, we had two guitarists who were in every scene. So they were part of the village. The music was all original, which was incredible. We had this incredible guitarist at Henderson. The clothes were very, very much of the world. Soft period, I would call it, but definitely nothing that would place it outside of its own thing to our modern eye. Was Flinte popular with Stratford audiences? massively popular. You couldn't, I couldn't have sold my grandmother for a ticket about six weeks into the run. Like, and the last two months of the run, there were people waiting for returns, but people loved it. And I think in sort of post-show chats and meet and greets, I don't think I've ever had people saying as much, we want more of this. We want more Spanish golden age plays. I think because of what Paul said, the sensation of a classical play, but the novelty of something that you don't know the ending of. Thank you, Sarah. That's really awesome. We appreciate you taking the time. You're to talk welcome. About it. You are most welcome. It's really, actually, it's really nice to think about it. I haven't thought about it in a while. A very special production it was really special to me. So nice. thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode of Writ in the Margins. Uh, special thanks to Molly Ceramit and to Sarah Topham for their time and expertise with this episode. Uh, original banjo music provided by Jordan Willis. And we hope that you'll take the time to listen to the rest of our podcast season, which includes episodes not only on Fuente of Ahuna, but three other exciting early modern plays. This has been Writ in the Margins. On behalf of everyone involved in this project, thank you so very much for listening.
thanks so much for listening to Written the Margins. On behalf of my awesome students, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. All opinions shared on this podcast belong to episode hosts and their special guests, and do not necessarily reflect the positions of our places of work and study. Please check out our show website for more resources, including show notes and transcripts. Now don't be a drama turkey. Listen to another episode.